Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free now at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now here's our show. We are a city on the rise, forging into the future from our ironed out past. We are a city of fire and water, of trees and towers, built through generations of blue collars and the brightest scholars and all of those who have worked harder. We hold tight to our roots and set our sights on tomorrow. And this is our team that has stood with our city for more than a century, from Old Municipal to the corner of Carnegie. A team that has seen its own progress and prosperity. Its history flows like the river through the heart of this city. A history that has given us miraculous moments. Moments that spanned years and others 22 games. Moments that broke barriers and moments that broke hearts. Moments that prove this is more than a game. We remember those moments as we move forward with change. You see, it has always been Cleveland that's the best part of our name. And now it's time to unite as one family, one community, to build the next era for this team and this city, to keep watch and guard what makes this game the greatest, to come together and welcome all who want to join us. We are loyal and proud and resilient. We protect what we've earned and always defend it. Together we stand with all who understand what it means to be born and built from the land. Because this is a city we love and the game we believe in. And together we are all Cleveland Guardians. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, everybody. My name's Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available, and we appreciate your uh, finding us this week. And um, we're going to gear up for the holidays with our uh, very special third annual, if you can believe it, year-end holiday spectacular. It's our little roundup. Uh, We kind of try to check in with... um, some of our pals uh, that we've uh, met uh, over the, I don't know, almost five years now worth of uh, of investigating uh, things in the uh, realm of forgotten sports that what used to be in professional sports in particular. And um, uh, we are uh, delighted to welcome back uh, for another year round, uh, year end, I guess, uh, sort of a, a discussion about sort of stuff we sort of saw this year, perhaps some uh, some speculation about what might uh, happen uh, or become future episode fodder in the realm of defunct and forgotten and uh, previously domiciled kind of franchises and leagues and teams. And Lord knows they're just, it's like the old Jay Leno commercial for, um, uh, for Doritos. I think it was Doritos or Tostitos or whatever. We'll make more. Um, I, I, there's just never seems to be an end to uh, the uh, attempts to create new stuff in the realm of pro sports and, uh, and things, frankly, not always working out. And uh, we, while we don't necessarily revel in such things, we certainly are intrigued by them. Uh, and that will always be sort of the source 
uh, of material uh, for as long as uh, we sort of care to keep doing it. And as long as you keep listening, we appreciate that for sure. Andy Crossley, the uh, founder of uh, the wonderful site Fun While It Lasted, funwhileitlasted.net, our episode number two guest, our second ever, uh, is back to um, opine on a few uh, a few topics, as is Paul Reith's, uh, our episode number 46 guest about the uh, USFL, the original version of such, hint, hint, a topic that will come up in our conversation uh, coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, he, the uh, chief proprietor of two great sites, Stats Crew, statscrew.com, lots of great sports stats of stuff current and past uh, and forgotten as well, as well as Our Sports Central, OurSportsCentral.com, which is, uh, frankly, the definitive place for all the latest news in everything alternate and minor leagues uh, currently existing. Not the dead stuff, but the current stuff, perhaps future dead stuff or perhaps future major stuff. But uh, Our Sports Central, a long time, uh, a great resource. And last but not least, our, our pal Steve Holroyd, who I think uh, has the, uh, the the green jacket, I guess, of the uh, most appearances of our uh, fearsome threesome uh, in our year-end uh, holiday spectacular uh, uh, gaggles uh, together. Uh, two lacrosse episodes, numbers 92 and 188, and uh, two soccer episodes, 109 and 149. I'll let you search those up and see what those interesting topics are. But there's a reason Steve keeps coming back, because he knows his stuff and is... Um, you know, an amateur historian extraordinaire uh, spends a lot of extra time. We wonder uh, about the day job and just how much extra time he's, he devotes to these uh, exploits because he's uh, been around uh, uh, the soccer history thing for quite some time, uh, the lacrosse uh, history thing for quite some time, and now is uh, kind of focused his efforts mostly on old time, old school basketball. Uh, the uh, Facebook page is called Only the Ball Was Brown. A little hint, a little takeoff there on the uh, uh, old baseball title by uh, Robert Creamer. Uh, the podcast, though, is also up as well. Only the Ball Was Brown, uh, old-time basketball stuff. But Steve knows a lot of stuff about a lot of different things. And um, we are uh, happy to have all three of them back. And uh, the uh, clip at the top of the show here kind of sets up one of the topics we're going to get into. And that's, of course... Uh, the uh, ending of the formerly known as Cleveland Indians Major League Baseball franchise, officially changing their name uh, on uh, November 9th, it was just a few uh, weeks ago as we record this, uh, to the new name, the, the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, we'll be talking about that for sure. That's certainly a, a topic uh, uh, that sort of fits our little criteria. Uh, what else? Uh, we're going to get into, as the aforementioned, of course, USFL. Uh, if you've been living under a rock uh, for the um, uh, last few, uh, by the way, sorry, it's Robert Peterson was the book. Only the ball was white was the name of that book. Uh, and only the ball was brown. Sorry, I, you know, I had to call it back before I forgot it. The USFL uh, is uh, coming back supposedly under the auspices of, uh, of Fox Sports uh, and a little bit of um, uh, a hint of the former Spring League or perhaps maybe a lot of the Spring League. Uh, but with names uh, and registered at that, trademarked at that from the old league. Uh, let's see if that flies or our speculation on that. Uh, we'll delve into the XFL, of course. The uh, Oliver Luck versus Vince McMahon court case continues to to happen. Uh, we talk about um, perhaps some franchises that may indeed be uh, in um, 
uh, a vulnerable state of possibly moving and becoming themselves uh, previously domiciled. Uh, the Buffalo Bills and the NFL and their stadium. Uh, a lot of these are stadium related. The Oakland a- Athletics, of course, uh, looking at uh, Las Vegas. It seems more serious by the week. Um, the Phoenix Coyotes seems to be an interesting story that's playing out uh, as we record this uh, somehow. Um, uh, making amends on their uh, outstanding tax uh uh, owings to uh, the city of Glendale. But uh, after this season, Glendale's not going to let them play in their current arena anyway. So um, there's been a, a denial of a rumor of them moving to Houston. Uh, but uh, there's a great franchise that we love to kind of obsess about because it always seems to be teetering on something uh, perhaps uh, uh, in a new place. Uh, and of course, the uh, Major League Baseball saga of the uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, who have been floating the idea of not only just one, but two, two, count them, stadia uh, in two different cities. One being uh, the Tampa Bay market, I believe, in Tampa Bay, in Tampa proper versus their current domicile in, in St. Pete. Uh, or I, I could have that wrong. And Montreal, of all places. Uh, will that work? A team that, that plays and lives and is domiciled in two team, uh, two cities. At the same time, we get into whole bunches of other stuff. We talk about uh, the uh, NWSL soccer uh, thing. We talk about um, uh, the renovations, if you will, of uh, of two leagues also in the women's sports, the uh, National Women's Hockey League, uh, becoming now the premier hockey federation and National Pro Fast Pitch, the softball league uh, being rebranded and restructured to become uh, known as Women's Professional Fast Pitch. Um, and all kinds of stuff. We talk about uh, Major League Cricket and Major League Soccer and all uh, the ESPN Classic uh, coming to an end at the end of the month. Uh, all kinds of stuff and more as well as, of course, our crystal ball predictions, uh, all of that stuff coming up uh, in our wonderful conversation, our year-end holiday spectacular, we call it, our third annual, with uh, Messrs. Steve Holroyd, Paul Reeths, and Andy Crossley coming up in a few moments' time and um, – let us see now. Uh, it's the holiday season, I'm told, <laughs> and uh, it's crept up on us uh, very quickly. Uh, and uh, we're just instead of picking one of our great uh, uh, merchandise sponsors, we're going to just quickly roll through all of the um, the promo codes to save you some bucks uh, at all these great sites for that uh, forgotten sports fan uh, in your life. And uh, in no particular order, here they are. Vintage Ice Hockey, code good seats. Royal Retros, promo code seats. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, Hyadine. Our code uh, there is good seats. Ebbets Field Flannels, our pal Jerry. Code good seats 10. Good seats, the number 10. Ebbets Field Flannels. Rebound Vintage Hoops, check them out at uh, the uh, code is good seats for you there. 417Helmets.com, promo code good seats. Um, for savings there. Oldschoolshirts.com, P.F. Wilson and friends. How you doing? Promo code good seats. Uh, Streaker Sports, the uh, purveyor of sports culture. Hiya, guys. Your promo code there is good seats. And again, last but not least, extra time vintage for some great stuff uh, in the realm. I think of soccer uh, forgotten shirts. Uh, promo code there is good seats. Lots of savings for you there. Please enjoy. Uh, we appreciate you doing so uh, and um, uh, taking advantage of these uh, great offers from our wonderful sponsors. And uh, thanks to all of them for their continued love and support uh, this year and uh, in many cases, years past as well. 
Thank you uh, to all and happy holidays to all. And uh, let's get in the holiday spirit, shall we? Why don't you uh, pour yourself a nice big glass of eggnog, kick back, relax, throw another log on the fire. And here we go. Let's talk to our pals, Andy, Paul and Steve, as we recollect about what happened this year and what might happen next year. In the realm of uh, what we like to obsess about, forgotten sports and defunctness, here it is. It's the uh, our third annual year-end holiday spectacular conversation. The roundtable begins right now. Please, as always, enjoy. The, uh, the excitement is palpable, isn't it, guys? <laughs> That's right. I'm ready to go. I'm right. juiced. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so... Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, we've been doing this for uh, this this silly little show for almost five years now. And this is, I guess, our third sort of attempt to kind of have a, I don't know, call it a roundtable, call it a, just a, a coffee clatch, a, a holiday, a, a, you know, eggnog share. I don't know what, but um, it's just uh, I, I'm always uh, uh, heartened by uh, folks who sort of have uh, fallen into our little uh, wormhole, I guess, of. Uh, interest in all things defunct and 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 no longer with us and stuff in the realm of sports. And I, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted, frankly, by, I mean, I just got a couple of emails from a guy in Russia who wants an, a, an episode devoted to the, the Hawaii volcanoes. And, and sure enough, our pal Steve, hey, good it, there you go. So yeah. um, I'm going to use yeah. that as an, so number one, it, it just shows you just all these various nooks and crannies that we're going to smoke them all out at some point and get them just in the hundreds of thousands of, uh, but, you know, I, it's it's heartening to to hear that the other people sort of uh, uh, suffer from, I guess, the same malady that I do. And, and you guys are probably perhaps the most uh, intensely uh, passionate and uh, and long lasting when uh, we kind of get the show on the road and, and supportive and stuff. So we love having you back and, and kind of, I guess, reveling in maybe newfound things about the old, but maybe also some, I don't know, some uh, opining, I guess, about uh, what might be future episode material in the, in the present. Um, but let me uh, let's just give uh, each of you a chance to kind of just update our audience as to what you guys have been doing uh, on your in your own sort of realms around uh, our little topic here. And, and Steve, I'll start with you, because as hinted, uh, you, you've kind of moved your um, some of your original interests from, I guess, when we met with soccer and then into the lacrosse. And you've kind of been going to the hoops direction of late, no? Yes, that's correct. Uh, to, to the extent people know me at all, they probably know me from about 20 years of doing uh, a lot of American soccer stuff. And I, uh, I did start getting involved in, in professional lacrosse, which I'm still doing at crosscheck.com. But in the last year, in fact, I think I, I kind of announced it with the last show, uh, the last the last roundup show we did last year. I said, you know, I, I decided that pro early pro basketball was being criminally underserved. No one pays attention to anything prior to say the, Bird Jordan era about 1980, and so yeah, I've been doing a deep dive into that, and it was um, and it, it tied nicely with a project Paul had teed up to get the old Eastern Basketball League statistics up on his site, and so I jumped into that. So yeah, in the last year I've been doing a lot of pro hoops, which has been fun because there's a shocking amount of stuff out there again pre 1980 that uh, people just don't know about, and then you know things pop up in the strangest of places, like you said. Uh, here's a guy in Russia who wants to know more about a continental basketball association team that lasted one year in Hawaii. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to mostly. Although lacrosse is still a thing, I've really kind of weaned myself 
off of soccer. There's a lot of good people doing soccer. It's kind of crowded. They don't need me. So, yeah, basketball and lacrosse has been what it's been. Fantastic. Um, we'll get a little bit some of that. Uh, aforementioned, Paul, uh, what's going on with Stats Crew and all your other stuff? And uh, and tell us about the Eastern Professional Basketball League project that you've been sort of doing. We had a, a couple of episodes that touched on that this year. Uh, one of the tributaries, probably, perhaps uh, maybe, I guess, uh, uh, long ignored, frankly, uh, into uh, whatever professional basketball has become for sure. As Steve mentioned, uh, we continue on statscrew.com to look for kind of the forgotten leagues, uh, major leagues, minor leagues. So, you know, it this kind of dovetailed uh, so well with what uh, Steve was looking to do. And he did a phenomenal job of just digging into the Eastern League uh, and uncovering tons of previously forgotten players and players. Uh, and stats and teams, <laughs> all the developments from the league that became uh, the CBA and was really the NBA's uh, main minor league for such a long time. And, and you got to remember, too, that uh, the NBA was so much smaller uh, than it was today. Uh, so these were tremendously talented leagues, guys who, you know, they don't deserve to have their careers uh, forgotten about. And that's really what we strive to do with Stats Crew is – Yes, we have all the current NFL stats. We we have all the current NBA, NHL numbers. But what we really want to do is to take a, as you mentioned, kind of a deep dive into these leagues, players, and teams that may have been forgotten. And and what of of stats crew and uh, your your minor league stuff? To tell our audience or remind our audience about that, or perhaps those who are unaware, because uh, you run the most comprehensive site devoted to quote unquote minor league professional stuff out there. Um, and it's a, a wealth of information and, and arguably one that a lot of sort of traditional sports departments and media firms kind of just uh, uh, miss or ignore. I, our sports com is, was, has been my main site for more than two decades. As you mentioned, it covers minor leagues and also alternative uh, major leagues, uh, major league soccer, the WNBA, maybe uh, all those, um, leagues professional leagues outside of the big four the nfl nba nhl and major league baseball so we we keep an eye on on developments in all those leagues that includes tim uh so many of the subjects of some of your programs over the last 20 years uh we we you know kept an eye on those leagues and you know we continue to monitor things like spring football leagues uh, minor hockey, arena and indoor football, and all, all of those things on OurSportsCentral.com. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a treasure trove. And by the way, I, a shout out to our Russian listener. His name is Victor Che. And um, uh, Steve and, uh, and Paul, as you think about uh, enhancing uh, your uh, Volcanoes uh, uh, research and library there, uh, apparently there was also uh, the Lakers apparently were uh, often uh, training their preseasons and stuff. So there might've been some overlap and or cross pollination that one season that the, uh, the volcanoes were there, but I don't want to get into that episode just yet, but feel free to use that uh, and um, uh, no charge uh, for that little tidbit of information. Uh, but last and not least uh, Andy Crossley, uh, perhaps maybe I, you were our second ever uh, episode, actually our first ever interview. So a little, little trivia for the two people out there who care about that. 
Um, but uh, you've uh, done a complete re-invent uh, uh, of uh, your classic website. Why don't you tell our audience or introduce for the first time, if they're not aware, this, um, I, I don't know what to, else to call it, but uh, absolute treasure trove of all things defunct um, with Fun While It Lasted. Uh, yeah. We had the 10-year anniversary of the website earlier this year, and I decided to sort of celebrate that by investing some money and really working with a professional developer for the first time and kind of taking it out of its mom and pop status. So that was uh, exciting and a lot more work than I expected. Um, The new look sort of rolling out in phases, the first of which like came online just a couple of weeks ago. So um, I've had my head down on that project a lot this year, but beyond that, I think the other thing that was exciting about this year was just getting back into going to professional sports events again for the first time. Um, so I'm out, I'm out here in Massachusetts and was able to return to stadiums for the first time by going to some New England revolution games this year, um, including their, uh, was in a, a luxury suite at Gillette stadium Tuesday night for their, uh, devastating quarterfinal loss to New York city FC. Yeah. They ruined, so, they ruined um, the script, didn't they? Yeah. After one of the, you know, all time historic regular season runs in, in major league soccer, uh, but a thrilling game. And, and it was just a great experience to get off of my computer screen after two years and actually get back into experiencing sport as it's meant to be experienced. Well, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. And, and perhaps it's maybe just the draft here in the window here, but, uh, but fun while it lasted.net, uh, you know, if you haven't been there for a while, or if you just haven't heard or seen it before, um, make sure that you devote, uh, you know, cl- lock the doors, uh, turn off the lights and, uh, and don't go anywhere. Cause you're not going to be leaving your computer screen for hours on end. If it's uh, brand new to you, because it's, uh, everything about this show, I guess, probably cubed. Uh, and and in many respects, one of uh, one of the persistent uh, reasons that I kind of just sort of threw myself into doing this podcast, because I knew there was at least one other person out there in the world uh, who cared about uh, these uh, teams like the Colorado Silver Bullets featured on the front page today. Uh, an episode I've been dying to kind of figure out an entree into, uh, et cetera. So, Andy, I uh, uh, would continue uh, just uh, in awe of uh, this, um, I, I, the Wikipedia of forgotten sports. I don't know. Uh, there's probably a, a tagline in there somewhere as you further professionalize this. All right. So I, I'm done um, uh, uh, fawning all over you guys. Uh, well, let's just kind of maybe uh, segue into some, uh, I don't know, current uh, defunctness, I guess, maybe, or, or defunctness in motion. Um, and then we'll just, you know, we'll throw around various topics and, and, you know, push me in a different directions. That's fine too. I got, you know, this is, this is a, a round table, so to speak, at least virtually someday, God forbid, we'll do this in person. Um, uh, I'm going to throw out that challenge maybe for next year. Um, but I, I, I you know, literally uh, as timely as today's headlines, um, there's something that popped up just the other day, about two or three days ago, clearly some folks are, are trying to get some narratives going around, uh, some franchise relocation. So uh, the Arizona Coyotes uh, of the National Hockey League, I'll start there, uh, potentially moving to Houston, which is an interesting place. But I think most hockey fans would recognize that that Houston has always been sort of in that mix and, and going back to its uh, World Hockey Association days. I think another sort of big one is this um, 
this dance between uh, 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 Oakland Athletics President Dave Caval and uh, the city of Oakland and Las Vegas. I was watching the uh, as we record this, the Pac-12 championship for a little bit last night. And as they were you know, doing their blimp shots over uh, Las Vegas, uh, the Las Vegas Strip, uh, there's talk that uh, the Bally's uh, uh, hotel location is, which is right across the street from the MGM Grand, I think, is the now apparently uh, floated place for a potential baseball stadium in Las Vegas. Um, so I just throw those two out there and there's some others out there. The Buffalo Bills are, are you know, a- a trying to shake down some cash and, and th- threatening to move and stuff. What do you guys think of those and others, um, uh, either specifically or just generally in, in today's sports franchise realm? I always forget that the Arizona Coyotes are still there. So I'm not <laughs> surprised to hear. I'm not surprised to hear their their name come up yet again. I think I think they were very close to moving to Canada several years back. Um Hamilton, Ontario, if I'm not mistaken. And I, 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 you know, they seem like the sort of um, uh, weak member of the pack for, or the herd for a long time. So, you know, you expect some, some other city to pick them off at some point. Andy's right. I mean, we've been hearing about Arizona forever and it's, it's just a symptom of, you know, hockey's larger problem. I mean, hockey's a great sport, but even, with the growth it's had in the United States, which I guess goes back to the Lake Placid miracle, um, it's it's never really expanded its footprint on television. I mean, it's still largely a, a ticket-based league. It's never gotten to the television money that basketball and football have seen. And they've experienced a bit of a bump you know, with the rising tide effect. I mean, as television realizes that the the only thing advertisers are willing to pay for are live sports because it's one of the few things people won't just DVR and and fast forward past the commercials for while hockey's doing a little better it still needs to expand beyond you know the traditional Canada northeast United States Minnesota type of uh, footprint and so Gary Bettman for decades now and we're going back to like the late 1990s has insisted on putting franchises in places like Arizona and Nashville, and after the you know, the, the initial bloom wears off, they all struggle. Um, uh, you know, some teams do. You know, Nashville had a good run, so the the, the fan interest was up. But it's, from what I understand, it's back down to like you know barely sustainable levels. Atlanta, after a second try, had to go running back to Winnipeg, and Phoenix, as Andy pointed out, has long been rumored they were they were supposed to be going back to Winnipeg, which is interesting because that's where they came from in the first place. Quebec was floated. Hamilton was floated. Notably, it's always another Canadian city. And Bettman seems to be treating the Arizona Coyote as like, you know, his, that's, that's, that's his litmus test for his expanding into the Sun Belt. And he's, you know, he won't let them leave. There's been a couple deals. The league has squashed over the years. Um, And so now even where there's finally talk of giving up the ghost, although again, not so much giving up on Arizona, but hiding behind, well, you won't give us a good arena. Um, where's he looking to go? Not Hamilton, not Quebec, not Saskatchewan, but Houston, which, yeah, has a great history, thanks to the Howells and the WHA, the Howell family and the WHA, is, again, not something that's long-sustained professional hockey. I mean, they've, they, they've had AHL and CHL teams come and go. Um, but, he's, you know, Gary Bettman is hell-bent 
on making hockey an American sport when, and I say this as a longtime Flyers fan, indeed, as someone born in Canada, I don't dislike hockey, but I don't think it's ever going to make it uh, that way. He, he'd be better off retrenching and just, you know, going back with an original six mindset, if not number, and just say, look, you know, we're, we're, this is hockey. We're going to, we're going to uh, service our, our fans and not really worry about the casual fan. But that's not his M.O., and, and the Coyotes remain a constant reminder of that. Yeah, like, you know, I, although the Las Vegas, right, I think to the surprise, we talked about this last year, I mean, just the surprise of everybody, right? So that probably gives new life to sort of that idea. I, Houston's intriguing to me. Uh, Paul, you may have a, a differing opinion. I think Kansas City as well. We, we've done a couple episodes on the Kansas City Scouts back in the day, and that Sprint Center or whatever it's called now. Uh, has been just, you know, sitting there waiting in, in plain sight for the last almost 10 years now for either an NBA or an NHL franchise to, and nobody seems to want to bite, but it's a, it's a world-class facility for sure. So I, you know, I, money, right. It all boils down to money. And, uh, and Paul, before you sort of come in, I'll throw in, you know, baseball is unique and, and maybe arguably debate, look at some of the stats, maybe sort of on decline a little bit in terms of attendance and stuff. There's some various reasons for that, but Perhaps the most uh, crazy of all these schemas is uh, Tampa Bay and Montreal supposedly trying to uh, the idea of having a team domiciled in two t- two cities at, in this at the same time and and splitting their season um, just seems to be another sort of cherry on the top of the, all this madness. I think it's strange, and you know, let's first of all touch on some of the NHL stuff. You know, I think Steve uh, Steve is really onto something with with history. Uh, a lot of the markets, and especially the southern markets, don't have any kind of history with hockey. We'll have to see with even Vegas and the NHL which direction they go. Uh, they've started off so hot, uh, but long term, what does the market look like? Uh, the the problem is the lack of history, and, and maybe Houston is the one southern market that that won't suffer because they do have a little bit of a history with the game. Uh, in addition to some money in the city, uh, Kansas city, I'd be a little bit more leery about even with the the scouts there. Uh, I mean, does that end up looking like another Atlanta? Um, that, that's what I'd be a little, you know, pretty concerned about with the Kansas city market. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays and Montreal thing, uh, just a logistical nightmare for those players. Uh, uh, being in two very different cities in, in very different locations. Um, I don't know what the Rays are trying to do there. They seem to have floated like 18 different plans. Uh, and part of it is that the, the, the municipalities just don't want to chip into the point where they have before. So it's going to force some of these teams in looking, but uh, you know, we, I, if anything, outside of the NHL, it seems like we're hearing a this right now. Yeah, I, it's um, I, look, it all boils down to money. And a lot of it tends to also be uh, stadium shakedown stuff, right? Buffalo, same thing, every day, NFL. And you can almost predict it like clockwork. I mean, and uh, fans of this show, of course, if you haven't been uh, bookmarking and, and adding to your RSS feeds, Field of Schemes, uh, written by Neil DeMouse uh, in Brooklyn, uh, just the the ultimate uh, news source for all kinds of shenanigans and stuff. And it's very, it's hard not to be cynical about all this stuff. Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I we'll see. I, but then, you know, there are, it gets, it's get on the, on the more positive side, right. It gets interesting, right. When, you know, we see now soccer specific stadiums, I obviously go back to soccer always do uh, 
you know, Charlotte uh, coming um, into the league next year with plans for an eventual stadium, but St. Louis uh, still out there with uh, in the uh, having broken ground. Um, there's going to be a new stadium in Nashville uh, after two years uh, of uh, playing in um, uh, the, the, the large uh, uh, arena there, whatever it's called now. Um, Angel City uh, FC, the uh, National Women's Soccer League or uh, franchise, which obviously is a name change. I may well get Andy's opinion on that in a second. Um, is building its own soccer specific stadium for their team, even though the Kansas City um uh, sporting Kansas City uh, across the way has a arguably world class twenty thousand seater uh, in MLS, right? So uh, a lot of this continues to sound like stadiums, but maybe more interestingly, and maybe this is sort of the, the thing I'll throw out there, guys, is real estate, right? So Atlanta Braves, right? I mean, moving their 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 operation and building a stadium, Truist Park or Stadium, whatever it's called literally is in a shopping sort of a center, if you will, a real estate center, sort of campus-like setting. And we see it with the, with the Cubs, you know, building out around Wrigley Field and stuff. A lot of this to me seems now more obvious that maybe this isn't about the sports franchise as much as it is now about real estate and all the things that can come from that. Well, just revenue streams generally. I mean, I think even – I mean, soccer has always been particularly sensitive towards that because, again, um, up until fairly recently, there wasn't a whole lot uh, of interest television-wise. Even now, they have to compete with a much superior product in the in, in the EPL uh, when uh, trying to sell its rights. And you know, they they figured out a long time ago, boy, you know, we're not getting any money from TV, and when we're doing the hermit crab thing and we're renting big stadiums, not only are we losing out on concessions, losing out on parking, paying a rental fee, but one of the things soccer really has to sell is its atmosphere. And we're losing that because 20,000 might be a good crowd for MLS. It's empty in a 70,000 seat stadium. And so I think initially the thought was we're going to build our own stadium so we can maximize our revenue streams. And I think all the sports have sort of glommed onto that saying, you know, we can only get so much out of the game day experience and everything is getting more expensive because the players get more expensive and there's going to be a plateau with TV money. There's only so much money going around. How do we maximize the game experience? And I think you're seeing, I mean, real estate always has value. I I mean, Tim, you're obviously on to something there, but I think generally it's like, Hey, let's, let's make this an event, you know, come. It's, it's not, it's almost like the old days when you had center city stadiums, People were going to a local pub, hanging out a bit, and then going to watch the ball game, and then maybe going to the bar after the game, getting something, a bite to eat. Now that you know, that's not always practical, with the exception of baseball, I mean, it, it, real estate's too expensive to start pumping, plopping these things in the middle of the city. Um, it, it's almost like the way malls have disappeared, and now you have the box store, faux downtown Main Street look with these shopping centers. I think that's what a lot of these teams are looking at. Hey, let's make this a game day experience. And so, you know, and the revenue stream is now we're charging rent because we own the land. But, you know, overall, it just it just increases our footprint beyond sports. And that can't be a bad thing. And I think especially with soccer, now you have municipalities with skin in the game. So where before uh, these teams were always renters of larger fields who had even bigger tenants, uh, typically NFL or Major League Baseball teams. Now these municipalities are are kind of reliant on these 
soccer teams to fill the venues. So uh, I, I think that makes a little bit of a difference too, just with, uh, with community support, with, um, and, and with the, the amount of effort that the, the, the cities are, are willing to put behind some of these soccer teams, that's going to, that, watching the growth of soccer and particularly uh, with the, its ability to get stadiums built, not only for major league soccer, but for USL championship and USL league one, the division two and three leagues, uh, has been pretty fun to see. Yeah, Andy, it's it's got to seem uh, a, a complete bizarro uh, role reversal, right? I mean, given your days back of the, with the old uh, uh, Boston Breakers in 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 women's soccer, right? Uh, to see a Kansas City team building their own specific stadium, but but you can sort of see it, right? Versus having to schlep around, uh, shall we say, less than willing, uh, 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 you know, uh, stadium uh, places to to play, and now it's almost the opposite. And you think that, you know, that team and others, right, it's they can also use that facility, hopefully, for other things, ancillary revenue, maybe beyond the soccer schedule and and really control more of their own financial destiny. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it seems like bizarro world, because if you live in Boston like I do, you know, what you guys just described is how it's been here for years. You know, that the Patriots built a mall around their around their um around Gillette Stadium, you know, 15 years ago. Um when the Bruins you know the Bruins ownership recently redeveloped the area around the Boston Garden that they control and um the Red Sox have persistently built out the area around Fenway Park. So so that all seems normal. <laughs> um the interesting thing, you know, the soccer example that you gave is I think you know, it's more telling about just the sort of difference between the haves and the have nots. And you've got all of these little, you know, entrepreneurial leagues popping up in all different sports, trying out these sort of kooky uh, business models to try and survive. And then you've got, you know, the big guys that are basically multi-billion dollar companies at this point that can, you know, redevelop an entire you know, acre of a downtown of a major city. So it's, <laughs> it's, you know, the difference between those things is amazing. But in, when I was in women's soccer, um, you know, 10 years ago, you were starting to see some of the ownership groups come in that have the potential to do major things like build a stadium, you know, AEG was involved in that league. And the new league that I was in, women's professional soccer, and the new league, the NWSL, or I should guess it's not new anymore, but the current league has attracted, you know, major investors such as some of the MLS teams um, that are behind teams like Portland franchise and Houston and Orlando. Um, but, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was with the Boston Breakers, we definitely were a mom and pop. You know, we had local owners. They weren't corporate. They were wealthy, but not ultra wealthy. And we played in Harvard Stadium, which was an old gladiator bowl built in 1903. We were renters. And we literally had to build that stadium every morning and take it apart every night to put on a game. We couldn't leave any trace we had been there. So, you know, the field boards, the concessions, the signage, the sponsor advertisements, every piece of it had to be laboriously um, put together by the time the game rolled around we were sweaty and exhausted Um, and then we still had a whole night ahead of us of taking it all apart you know that's not the case when you have a 
a brand new state-of-the-art stadium that you control. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I remember thinking at the time, you know, kind of being an amateur student of history, you know, our, our commissioner would talk about all of the new technology tools that we were taking advantage of at the time. Um, in 2009, the Women's Professional League, which was new that year, had a larger Twitter following than Major League Soccer did. Um, simply because Twitter was new and the women's league embraced it earlier than major league soccer did. Um, and so they would often talk about how cutting edge, you know, the league was going to be, and that's what was going to let us be nimble and agile and survive on these small budgets. And I would hear that on, on one hand. And on the other hand, I'd say, you know, as I was building, you know, the field on a game day, you know, we're not, we're doing business the same way that a second division American soccer league team did business in 1974. <laughs> um, you know, we might have a Twitter account, but we're still hauling field boards out of the back of U-Haul, you know, vans at seven o'clock in the morning. So um, yeah, it, it's the, the women's games come a, a long way and it's good to see what's happening you know, in some aspects of that league right now with the, you know, development of these new stadium projects, for example, they've got a lot of other growing pains to work out, but, um, you know, the things that's going on with this, with the stadiums are really promising. One thing I wanted to add, um, I don't know how much of my previous answer you got because apparently I got dropped. For what it's worth, we're talking about all this kookiness. Let it not be forgotten that when U.S. soccer was looking to establish division a Division One league as as was required by FIFA as a condition of getting the '94 World Cup. There was a gentleman I forget his name, but there was that guy that was floating the League One concept that talked about building stadiums and like surrounding them with shopping malls. And back in '95, that seemed oh my god, this is the craziest thing ever. This guy's a lunatic. And lo and behold, it turns out he was a forward-thinking genius because that's what people are doing now. Yeah, it was called League One America, and. Yeah. Um... A guy we're working really hard to get on this show is is Paul Marr, who is the uh, uh, is called his uh, Twitter feed is MLS ist uh, writes for the Athletic and uh, he does a ton of throwbacks. Oh him, yeah, 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 great NASL stuff. and all that kind of stuff. And he has done it. Uh, there was a piece I think he did a couple a uh, number of years back, et cetera. And it just, um, yeah. But you're right. I it's it does seem to me that. Uh, that vision of kind of, you said before, I think Andy said it, revenue streams, uh, but, you know, no more uh, central, I guess, than the place in which uh, the competition happens. And then from there, you can radiate out either your own stuff or you become the landlord and um, and the circle of life sort of. Uh, before we run away from um, women's soccer, I mean, Andy, obviously the uh, – ask you the, the the problems and issues of the nwsl are well known and uh and systemic and 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 disturbing but uh, it seems like at least uh there is concentrated effort to uh right uh, those wrongs um uh but i will say it already feels to me like um uh, it's 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 well on its way to strengthening itself once uh they can sort of figure out their uh, some of their structural and, and, and organizational issues, because you look at, you know, what I would argue was a very successful final game played in Louisville, a neutral site, well attended. Um, you, you see the growth, the addition of a, a new team in Los Angeles with Angel City with some big backers, this Kansas City Stadium thing. Um, it feels to me like there's some really strong roots there. 
um, and maybe save for a rebrand, which it seems to be uh, possibly uh, maybe helpful to kind of uh, turn the page, I guess. Uh, I, what's your what's your thinking it feels to me that despite all of the the stuff that's come out and maybe maybe some more still uh, there just doesn't seem to be any quit in the idea of women's soccer uh lasting and moving forward this time around versus some of the other attempts yeah i I mean it it, it's hard to know what to say about uh, the nwsl to me like 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 you said there's a lot of positive things that are happening like the angel city franchise um uh recently announced they had sold 12,000 season tickets for next year which is just you know unheard of for a, a a women's pro soccer launch um oh a women's pro the, sports launch for, broadly right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I, I don't know what some of the recent WNBA teams have done, um, but yeah, it certainly it, it's a it's a remarkable achievement, no matter what. It you know the 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 reckoning that they're having with their you know their coaching core in particular, but also some of their executives and ownership about playing conditions and player safety. Um, and, and harassment is, uh, you know, shocking in the areas where it's detailed, but there's also lots of, there's also lots of stories there that are, that are, that are not, have not, there's no details whatsoever. So it's really hard to know sort of exactly what's going on with the league, um, in that regard and in each individual circumstance and like, I don't know. In some ways, it's like, wow, they're really good. <laughs> you know, they're really good at containing leaks because they don't leak. And then it's like, well, or is it that the coverage of the league is so minimal and there's only a few really dogged reporters like a Meg Linehan or of The Athletic or the her her counterpart at The Washington Post, whose name I'm drawing a blank on, who've, who've surfaced a lot of these stories, is that there's so few people who are doing the journalism that they're, they're able to have large areas of this, not really get any coverage or see any light. So without really knowing what's going on, it's hard to speculate on how much progress they're making um, or what sort of changes to expect, or even what all of the issues they're facing are. Um, So, you know, it's, it's been, um, it's been remarkable to watch. um, And and I think there's going to be a lot more twists and turns to their story as it plays out over the year ahead. Yeah. Look, I'll, I'll throw out, uh, I think women's sports generally on the professional level uh, is, is sort of uh, uh, benefiting from what I would argue is a rising tide uh, of sports and money and all that kind of stuff. Um, we have the uh, national women's hockey league uh, rebranding and structurally reorganizing, reorganizing, I think to be more, uh, franchise oriented, calling themselves uh, going forward the Premier Hockey Federation, um, National Pro Fast Pitch, uh, which has been around and, and and floating around with five teams often per year uh, for a number of years, is doing the same thing. They're rebranding and and reorging, and they're, they're going to call themselves Women's Professional Fast Pitch. Um, Athletes United, um, which you've heard me talk about before, which is sort of this uh, entity where uh, multiple women's sports. Uh, with uh, 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 sort of centralized 
campus-like, uh, maybe even touring-like uh, situations where the players benefit in the, in the profits. Uh, the teams actually float around based on performance and performance points and stuff. It just seems like there is a, and the WNBA, you know, certainly is is has crossed a couple of milestones. It just feels to me like, I wouldn't call it the next horizon because it's really been sort of there in plain sight, but, but the, there seems to be ample support, money, structure, and interest in bringing a lot of different versions of, of quote unquote women's sports to that next professional level that I, I don't think we've ever seen before in modern history. Yeah. I, I think it's benefiting from timing in that uh, two things. One, as you point out, um, sports is very marketable, again, especially in the world of television. Um, I, I think it, what also can't be discounted is, and I don't use the term pejoratively, it's just the only term I can think of that fits right now, is, you know, the, the rising tide of wokeness. Um, there's a, it, it's just much more on the radar screen that, hey, you know, we have to give opportunities to young girls who want to be athletes as well. And, and so, yeah, you're seeing these sports benefit from it and that people who might otherwise not be willing to put any money into what um, historically uh, in, across various sports in various leagues has always been a money losing proposition and ultimately a failure um, plug Paul and I are working on just one such failure. Now the first attempt at women's pro basketball in the seventies. Uh, but, um, but now it's almost seen like, well, I have a duty an obligation and, and I don't really care whatever it takes to get the money into the sports because, you know, while personally, I think particularly when you're talking about basketball, hockey, women's sports are always going to suffer in the comparison because just men are stronger, faster. It is what it is. But soccer, I've always felt, is the one sport that can really break through that because it's the one sport where the, the rules are all the same. And since the ball is on the ground and not in the air, a lot of the, oh, men are taller, faster, stronger, it really doesn't matter as much. And, I'm, and so I'm glad to see that you, know, you see Angel City getting real uh, backing, you know, the big, big names willing to put their, uh, put, put their money uh, into the project where Kansas City's building a stadium. Um, great times uh, because it, it, when you get an infrastructure, it's harder to walk away. I mean, it was easy for these other teams to fall because, mm-hmm. like in Andy's case, hey, we're breaking a lease with, Har- with Harvard University. Oh, well, we're going home. Now they've got a real investment, uh, a reason to stick it out the way other sports did back when they struggled. In the, you know, whether it was baseball or football in the early 20s or whatever. So, yeah, it's exciting times. It's, it's like a, a perfect storm of good opportunities. But look, whatever it takes to get there, I'm glad because it's long overdue, particularly with soccer. I mean, if, if there's ever a sport where a women's pro league ought to be thriving, it's, it's in soccer. And, and it looks like we're finally there. Yeah. And I'm not, the- I'm not sure I totally agree with, <laughs> uh, um, Steve's assessment, you know, I think of a sport like women's tennis, you know, I would say is there's, there's certainly parity and equal quality of watching the greatest women's tennis players play as the greatest oh, absolutely, players. Ab- absolutely, absolutely right. Um, I was talking team sports. You're right. Tennis, you're absolutely correct. I will, I, when I make that comparison, because it comes up a lot, I'm always focusing on team sports. So I, I apologize for not making that clear. Yeah, I I also think that like something I've said on your show in the past, Tim, is like I thought one of the next frontiers for for a league like NWSL was franchises taking uh, changing hands for a meaningful um, dollar amount. And that's now starting to happen. 
um, you know, the, the Seattle franchise and NWSL, you know, had a seven figure sale price, um, a year or two ago when it, when, um, it's French ownership group took over. Um, and you're now seeing like meaningful transfers, um, of players from between leagues because you have very wealthy European teams that are willing to pay for players. Um, so I do think there is now, I do, I do think there is now a profit motive that like people can envision in the women's game, which is really important. Um, because I think there's always been the goal of like, we, you, you know, I forget exactly how Steve characterized it, but like, yeah, there's a social need to have these sports. Like that's been the case, I think for a really long time. Um, but now it, that, that social need to have top flight women's sports can be paired I think more realistically with an idea that there's money to be made as well, especially if they're done in partnership with these big commercial developments or major league soccer teams or others where you've got, you know, infrastructure that you can play along with and not just have to be a, you know, a renter in someone else's building kind of like begging for scraps. And, uh, Outside the NWSL, first of all, I also mentioned, you know, the, the San Diego team in NWSL that's uh, preparing to enter the league so that, you know, there is growth there. Uh, but also, I think for the first time in a long time, there appears to be real interest in WNBA expansion uh, with a group in the Bay Area, for instance, that is looking at it. And I think that it's uh, I think we've gone from kind of this growth area the the WNBA to a shrinking of the WNBA back to looking at at growth again uh as far as uh the you know the PHF um you know I'm there's still some some battles with uh, the players the players group out there and I'm, I'm I'm not sure that we've seen real growth except maybe the the Toronto team there um but I can't imagine anybody's making money there or, or or even really all that close. Well, you also have, again, the Olympics uh, to the, we'll see what the Olympics looks like right in February, but you know, we, we've talked about this many times uh, amongst ourselves as well as elsewhere, right? The, there's always that, uh, that Olympic boost uh, for certain sports. And, and, you know, if the U S women's uh, hockey team continues to do well, as it has in Olympics past, that might be yet another sort of uh, gravitational field pull for more people to get uh, invested in and or to, you know, uh, come to uh, agreements on, on what organizationally needs to happen to take it to the next level, perhaps. It's entirely possible. You know, I, it would be nice to see uh, whatever war is going on there. Uh, at least there be some kind of truce, because I don't think that we'll see too much growth in the game until that happens. What's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. And that's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. You can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Holy mackerel. I added that part. 
Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. I'm going to make an inelegant segue, uh, and Paul, maybe sticking with you because uh, uh, you're, uh, 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 you've actually committed uh, pen to paper on uh, this topic, and probably have probably the most uh, ho- the hottest take, I guess, perhaps on on this thing called the USFL, but the second version of such, right? So, for those who have been living under a rock, uh, uh, the uh, USFL brand name uh, and the team's brand name, all that stuff has been trademarked by. Uh, ostensibly the the founder of this thing called the Spring League, which has been around for a number of years, sort of a developmental thing. And Fox Sports is now involved and and has gotten, depending on the week you sort of uh, look for news, uh, gotten people all in a a, a hot lather or in a furious boil uh, about sort of um, either reverentially or um, uh, cynically bringing back this United States Football League brand franchise whatever uh, remember, it only lasted three years and had a whole host of history as to why it didn't succeed. Uh, but, Paul, since you kind of authored uh, uh, the definitive sort of uh, a book on, uh, you know, the statistical history of this league originally, what do you think? And I'll open up to the rest of you. What do you think of what's going on, the reality of it, the unreality of it and uh, the wisdom, perhaps, or not of it? You know, you uh, for me, of course, hearing USFL is is kind of magical. It gets my attention right away, and th- that's because of the original. The original, which played from 1983 to 1985, was a major league that grabbed headlines for going after uh, some of the best players in the country. Uh, Jim Kelly, Steve Young, Reggie White, guys like that started in the USFL. Uh, went after four, uh, Heisman Trophy winners, former NFL MVPs. Uh, it was a major league, and it grabbed headlines. It is dead and buried. There is no rebirth. There's nothing of the sort. What there is is a guy named Brian Woods, who, as you mentioned, started the Spring League, which is where players pay to be in the league. Uh, and Fox Sports have have grabbed the intellectual property, uh, have just uh, submitted trademarks for USFL and the team names uh, and uh, and are launching what's really a developmental league. It's not a major league. Um, it's going to be a de facto developmental league. No known relationship with the NFL. No, you know, nothing of the sort. Uh, doesn't mean that it can be fun. It's really kind of a, uh, an XFL or Alliance of American Football. Um but with Fox's backing, uh, there's part of me that wants to be pretty interested, uh, but 
they're starting the the sea their first season's going to be a bubble likely in Birmingham, Alabama. All eight teams will be in Birmingham, regardless of of the location names assigned to them. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why that is. I hope that it doesn't show that uh, Fox only has half the money that it needs to really make this thing work the way that it should. Uh, I hope that it doesn't mean that um, Mr. Woods is trying to do this on the cheap as he has done with the FXFL and the spring league after it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty dubious with this effort so far uh, until more people get involved. And the fact that they, they essentially didn't end around the original guys uh, who were involved with the league. They they've, just cut them completely out, didn't come to any agreement about the intellectual property, the team names, the logos. They've just uh, completely cut them out. And whether they can legally get away with it or not, uh, maybe. Uh, they seem to think, it, you know, it's fine. But I've, if you're going to honor something, I don't think you'd do an end around on the, on the team names and the logos. Yeah, it feels, hollow. It feels hollow to me. Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, to me, it smacks a bit of the second North American soccer league and particularly, particularly the franchise that wants to pretend it's New York cosmos, you know, um, uh, you know, there's, as Paul pointed out, I mean, USFL was something special and I'm not even a pointy ball guy, but I remember between it being in the spring and the fact that that league made real efforts to be more than just, a spring league, more than just a developmental league. They went out and signed, as Paul said, the top draft picks, former MVPs, Heisman Trophy winners. Um, while I could see for a startup league wanting to bootstrap on that history uh, and and get instant recognition. Oh, you know, when, when you hear the name Houston Wranglers, you won't have to get what sport they're playing. You're going you're gonna to know it's football. While I get that, it's the, the word you just used, Tim, it's hollow. I mean, in the end, you're going to look around. You're not going to see any stars. You're not going to see any name you recognize unless they're going to bring, you know, uh, Jim Brown's going to finally come out of retirement after all these years and, and, and run a little bit, right? Um, it, it's, it's cheap. And, yeah, look, the lawyer in me understands that if you let a tra- trademark lapse, well, too bad for you. Um, but, but morally, you know, if you're going to trade in on the legacy I built, Maybe you want to throw something my way or at least have me involved as a consultant. So, yeah, hollow, cheap, and ultimately, uh, I, I guess I guess I'll, I'll stick with hollow. I mean, artificial. I mean, this isn't going – you're going to trade in on people's memories and offer them a woefully inferior product, um, and, and, and it's going to be much ado about nothing. And Steve has already broken some news by merging two of the teams already, the Houston Gamblers and the Arizona Wranglers into the Houston Wranglers, uh, uh, Houston uh, which I think is actually am, better, frankly. <laughs> What, I was going to let that, it go, Tim. I was going to let was it go. That, was that the world? Was that the world team tennis team? I thought that. I thought those names stuck together but somewhere. You, you're but, really opening up Pandora's box here. I, I yeah, wouldn't. Yeah, I'll stop. I, you know. I'll stop. <laughs> but it, it, it's the whole thing is so dumb, <laughs> and and you know, uh, Steve Steve kind of compared it to the North American Soccer League and the new Cosmos that came around. Well, at least the new Cosmos played in New York. You know, this USFL yeah. thing, you know, they've they've brought back eight of the, you know, 20 odd team names. So, you know, the Pittsburgh Maulers and the New Orleans, New Orleans Breakers and the Philadelphia Stars, they're using those city names, but they're not going to play in any of those cities. They're going to play in one city. They're going to stage it as a sort of 
tournament. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like the equivalent of hiring, you know, Buster Douglas to kind of sh- shake hands at the opening of your bar and grill. Like it's just a sort of tacky nostalgia throwback, but it doesn't have any connection to reality. These teams are never going to play in any of the cities that they they're using the names for. So uh, it, it's dumb and it's probably going to die a fairly swift death. Um, but it's, I don't know. It, it's, uh, what more there is to be said let me throw let me throw something out there for consideration i don't disagree with anything andy's saying i'm I'm real cynical about this model but you know uh with premier with the premier lacrosse league um paul rabel and the folks behind that league they do the traveling circus thing and and their thought is you know in the day and age of the internet where you're not wed to your hometown team where there's so many ways to watch them play. It's not like you have to walk to the park, uh, the, the, the downtown stadium to see them. Is it so crazy to go with that concept? I mean, and they seem to be doing okay so far. Um, it, it, now, and of course, they're at least touring. But it looks like the USFL wants to have it both ways. It's like, well, we'll call the team Philadelphia and hope Philadelphians will feel invested in it, even though the team's never going to play there. But will they care if they could just watch on TV? I mean, that part may not be – the model may not be as crazy as it seems. I, I still think trying to bootstrap on another league's history from, you know, 30-some years ago or whatever is a bit cheap and tawdry. But I wonder if the, if the future is going to be this whole bubble approach. I mean, basically, we're going to house it. We're going to stage all these things in one location because it's cheaper, and fans will still watch because no one's going to games anymore anyway. They're used to watching it on TV. So, you know, PLL is testing that model somewhat successfully so far. Uh, we'll see if uh, if uh, other niche sports like spring football are, are going to find it's a way to get a product out there while at the same time keeping overhead low. Yeah, and I think that's a false equivalence, though, because I, I think what Paul Rabel's doing with the PLL is actually the opposite of what this bubble idea is. Like he's he that's a he's taking a a a high quality product out on a road show as There's opposed, a big, you're right, big difference. As opposed to a low product. quality yep. product in a single place. And I think, I think what he's doing potentially solves one of the problems that has bedeviled so many of the leagues that we're all interested in, whether it's the women's United soccer association or world team tennis or any of these other things where you have world-class players like a Billie Jean King or a Mia Hamm um, or a Herschel Walker in the original USFL that lots of people clamor to see, but then you put them in this team sport league concept. And now Billie Jean King is playing 15 or 20 nights a a year in your city. Um, Or Mia Hamm's got 16 games a year in your city. And really what there is, is there's a huge market to see that person on one night only. And that's what I think PLL appeals to. Um, and you don't end up with all these Tuesday nights with 800 people there where you lose your shirt. So I, I think that model is really interesting, but I think it's a lot different than what this sort of bubble mentality is. Yeah, look, I, the, I think – I think. go ahead, Paul. Uh, this bubble mentality, uh, at least according to the league, is only supposed to be this year. So these teams are supposed to hit their home markets – uh, the following year, uh, whether that ever happens, uh, we'll see. Uh, what I find kind of interesting about this is is Fox. Fox is the owner of this thing. Fox has all the money into it. 
and you know, we talked a little bit last year about you know how do you make how do you make spring football work? You're only going to get so much from your ticket sales, uh, and the rest, for the most part, has to come from television. So, uh, with Fox's ownership, what they're essentially doing is cutting out the middleman. So, whatever this league earns from television, uh, they'll see 100 percent of it. All right, two uh, things. Yeah, two. I agree. So the two things I want to go. I want to jump off of that point in one second, uh, Paul, because it's an excellent point. I, I do think to, to your uh, the, the previous point, right? That there is absolutely something to this traveling thing, uh, bubble traveling, whatever it is. What I what it falls apart for me is a big three, right? Is another good example, right? Um, but it's very hard, I guess, and maybe I, Mr. Old School yelling at the clouds, right? It's very hard for me to get excited about sort of these manufactured names like the. The three ballers and the, the, you know, and whatever the PLL uses for their names and stuff. Right. And and it seems to me like maybe I think to Paul's point, you want to have it sort of both ways or USFL wants to have it both ways. The easiest way uh, around that is to maybe have at least some uh, uh, city history. And and as as long as that city is on the tour. Right. So to speak. So I I agree. I think that there is something to this. Traveling roadshow thing. I'm, I'm not sure everybody's figured out really what the quote unquote franchise component of that looks like. Um, but, uh, I agree. World team tennis is, is, is limping along, but it could be a lot much more uh, similar to those models. Now back, Paul, to your point. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because Fox and spring football, right? I think that's really the big story here. It almost feels to me like. What Fox is doing, Eric Shanks and company are doing is putting sort of a, a couple of chips on the sort of uh, uh, the table for what happens in the months and years to come as, wait for it, the XFL comes back next year. Uh, if uh, you saw some of the social media feeds a uh, couple of days back as we're recording this, um, there was a chart that was blown up that was a, it was a picture of a meeting with the uh, uh, I keep calling them the rock, but uh, the senior management team of the XFL, they are literally putting dates on the on the schedule for 2023 to come back for the third time. And this AAF thing is not going to go away. The Oliver Luck versus Vince McMahon court case is very much alive and is very nasty. And we'll probably get uh, garner more headlines in the months to come, too. So there is still this sort of, I don't know, appetite for spring football and it just seems to me like there are still some entities naively or cunningly or somewhere in between trying to figure out how to finally own this sort of patch of land that seems to have value to to, to people yeah tim i mean how many years in a row did we hear about all these spring football leagues uh that were going to launch and every once in a while something would like the united football league for some reason would launch with four teams and have a test season because we need to test outdoor football for some reason. Nobody's ever played it before. <laughs> just, just, uh, just really, really poor efforts. The FXFL, as I mentioned before, I don't count the spring league because the players are paying to play in and it's not, uh, it's not a professional league, but now in the last few years, I mean, you saw, you saw Vince McMahon, 20 plus years ago, take a flyer and found the, the XFL. Uh, Vince McMahon decided to do it again recently. Uh, Redbird Capital is funding the second version of the XFL. Uh, and now you have Fox, who apparently, uh, you know, is willing to put uh, more than $100 million into this effort. 
uh, all of a sudden there's there's been real money on the table that has been funding spring football, uh, you know, <laughs> because of uh, you know, Tom Dundon jumped in even to save uh, the the AAF. Uh, that league got off the ground, uh, spectacularly crashed. But I mean, we're, we're starting to see uh, almost an acceleration of these leagues actually hitting the field uh, with real money to one extent or another behind them when for it's it's we went two decades almost without without anything really uh, of substance hitting the field so that uh, you know part of me is wondering what are they seeing are are they seeing a real future a possibility for spring football somebody has to be I agree. Um, Look, and it it does. I I also think we're in an asset bubble. Uh, Generally, economically, low interest rates at all. It's been a couple of a decade or two now of that. And and the economy, always a question and and discretionary income. Right. Which is uh, also always part of the mix. Uh, And now in a new realm of media and social media and and real estate and betting, uh, all that kind of stuff, cryptocurrencies, even. Uh, both, uh, you know, uh, interestingly on the sponsorship front, but now also potentially as part of, of powering and funding things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and the sort of baseball cards 2.0, if you will, but for the digital age, uh, I know I'm underselling that. But it just seems to me that a lot of people are, they continue to be interested and in, and in find uh, to be alluring catnip in the realm of sports and brands and logos and all that kind of stuff, right? At the end of the day, that's sales and um uh, and, and revenue. All right. So let me, I, I don't, I'm, I'm somewhat buried the lead here, but I think maybe the most obvious story that we haven't talked about yet uh, is the rebranding of the formerly known as Cleveland Indians baseball team to the guardians. So now we have a team that's uh, been 120 some odd years old uh, in some way, shape or form, I think uh, now uh, literally going and uh, come erasing that name and, um, uh, so, uh, number one, guys, what do you think of the new name? Number two, what do you think happens to the old history uh, of the team? How does it get, um, shall we say, deftly uh, referred to without uh, offending and or, um, you know, sort of reiterating uh, arguably why it was changed in the first place? And then third, um, what do you think happens to the franchise? Does it get more? Does it? does that transition help hurt uh, somewhere in between uh, that franchise going forward? If there's a baseball season, of course. Yeah. We talked about this a bit last year. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess fortunately while uh, you know, the use of native Americans as a mascot is offensive, the name in and of itself isn't quite as bad as what Washington had been using. So I suppose that, uh, you know, if, if we're looking at old films, old documentaries, like we talked about last year, I mean, are we supposed to go back as NFL films supposed to digitally alter, you know, do some of the things Disney was, um, trying to do, uh, with, uh, with cutting out certain scenes or whatever. Fortunately with this name, I don't think we need to worry about that quite so much. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it was a name they used pretty consistently since 1915, right? Um, I think the new name is garbage. I would, I would have preferred, um, because again, it's baseball and you're talking about history that maybe you reach back and rebrand and use, say, spiders, use a name that the team used before they went with, uh, 
the name they're getting rid of. Um, so you can at least say, yeah, we haven't abandoned our history. We've had to rebrand because, but look, you know, we're reaching all the way back. We were always here. This is our name originally. Um, so here we are. I mean, I think taking Guardians out of nowhere, uh, that, that was someone's marketing decision. Someone decided that you know, a hat with a spider on it won't sell. It's not sexy. Um, there's a reason why I think even among colleges, there's only one college that's got that, nick- that nickname, Richmond, right? Um, so we need something that will get people excited. We'll go with Guardians. So it'll, we'll, we'll ride Marvel's coattails. I don't know. But, um, but I, don't, I don't think this one will present the problems of the Washington team as far as, okay, if we're going to go back and talk about Lou Boudreau and, and, uh, and Bob Feller and all the great players, how do we refer to them? I, 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 I think it's less of a bugaboo. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I don't care for Guardians at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty neutral on the Guardians name myself. I don't think it's great. I, I don't think it's terrible. Uh, and I, I would agree that, you know, compared to the Washington football team, which is the, you know, one of the topics we discussed last year on this show, it's less problematic what, what you do with history. Uh, you know, even, even today, people hearing that would be like, uh, is that on the line? Or are we, are we still doing that? Um, but, you know, it, it's not like the Washington name was. You know, I think, you know, Steve referenced Lou Boudreau and Bob Feller, and like that's the history of the franchise. And Bill Veck and Frank Robinson, um, you know, uh, that is. There's so many. There's there's so many different things that can disrupt the team over the year, whether it's moving a city or leaving one classic ballpark for a new ballpark. Like all of these teams overcome those transitions, and everybody. You know, there's always some portion of the fan base that's upset about a transition at the time. Um, So I I think the the issue for this team isn't really its name. It it is the name, but like its its biggest issue is like the um, visual history of the team and the Chief Wahoo logo. Um, You know, that's going to probably persist as a source of embarrassment um, to the team as it should. Um, you know, as people look back on the history, they'll just, they'll say that they were on the, you know, that history passed them by and ended up on the wrong side of that. Um, so I think they'll probably, I think they'll probably take steps to, to minimize or to carefully curate the way that the visual history of the team is presented when they do things like, you know, do tribute videos or 50 years ago today type of things. I think, I, I would imagine they're gonna they're gonna kind of memory hole that logo that was the centerpiece of their brand for for decades and decades. It's definitely going to be a very interesting historical exercise, and we obsess on this show mostly about teams that don't exist anymore and where those histories might logically or credibly live. Right? This is not that case. Right? It's it's clearly still there, but but yeah, it's not it's not easy, and it comes down to. Dare I say it again, branding and or narrative, either rebuilding or or whatever. And, and look, I, you know, we again, we, we hinted at it a little bit last last time. And we've had a couple of conversations around the Washington situation football. Um, you know, I, I, there's a reason why I think Florida State, uh, the Seminoles name still exists. I'm not sure about the, the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team, uh, but at least in the in the in the, uh, the effort of, of for Florida State, there has been a, a longstanding effort to. Uh, uh, habilitate or and or rehabilitate that name, making sure that it is uh, 
set up and uh, uh, intended as honorific uh, with uh, a lot of attention and, and um, focus on the history and all that stuff. So it's, it's positioned as a celebratory uh, nickname versus uh, something that's uh, other than that. And, you know, I, it, to me, I think there's some interesting stories in process as to how that rehabilitation model might look uh, and perhaps maybe give a pathway to some others that uh, eventually may need to do something similar um, over time. All right. One last question, and then I'm going to throw it out sort of a lightning round for you guys. Um, I noted uh, a couple of weeks back, having uh, spent a lot of my professional career in the media and uh, digital uh, uh, media realms and advertising and, and the like, uh, the uh, soon to sunsetting of um, uh, two networks uh, for two different reasons. One is NBC Sports Network, uh, which uh, seems to be a complete reverse of what was intended 10 plus years ago, where all these uh, broadcast networks realized or figured out that they wanted to uh, have their own version of ESPN, so to speak, so they could branch out, uh, have lots more uh, tie-in and, and content uh, uh, malleability with sports. Um so kind of a surprise when that was announced, uh, I guess, about this time last year and finally going to be pulling the plug at the end of this year. So interested in your comments on that and or what you think that might portend. But more, um, I guess, more directly to our listeners and to this conversation is the uh, sad passing. Uh, arguably, you could say it was already being sort of uh, underfunded. ESPN Classic, uh, which itself started as Classic Sports Network and was purchased by ESPN geez, I don't know, a dozen years ago, 15 years ago, and was at least for a good time there, a repository for great, sometimes original stuff devoted to, if you will, what used to be in sports. And um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts about that. I, I think there's some opportunity there, especially in the realm of streaming. I'm already seeing a couple of entities, one called Swerve Sports, that uh, starting to maybe think that there's a good streaming play for uh, the the remnants of what, say, an ESPN Classic was trying to do in the traditional classic linear cable form in uh, things shoulder for sports, sports history, documentaries, and the like. Um, there's some questions in there somewhere, guys. Go at it. I thought with the, in ESPN Classic's case, I think there's already a streaming service. It's called YouTube. I really think YouTube <laughs> stepped a on a one. lot. Of, yeah, I, I mean, I think... I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just as guilty as the next guy. I mean, between many documentaries, between taking old footage, YouTube sort of turned ESPN Classic into an on-demand service. So I'm, I'm not, uh, while, you know, nothing will replace the bigger budget uh, documentary type of things ESPN was willing to fund, a lot of being able to watch old boxing matches, old games, it's, it's all on YouTube on demand. So, I mean, I'm not surprised to see ESPN Classic going away. Um, but fortunately, and again, the, the content's not. It's all out there. No one's really paying attention to trademark, or I guess if they do, you just can't monetize it. But it doesn't mean the stuff's not up there. So um, we'll still have access to that material. As far as the NBCSN, I mean, the trend has been everything's getting pushed to streaming. I mean, they were doing that with Peacock even before they said they were pulling the plug on NBCSN what they did with the Premier League games. I mean, at first it was like, oh, you get across all these platforms. Oh, wait, no, now you have to buy the gold package. Oh, wait, no. It's just, I think, over the air is, is generally drifting towards streaming as they realize more people are cutting the cord and everything else. It was kind of inevitable. Yeah, and I mean, all the focus is going to be on driving streaming subscriptions. 
ESPN from cable companies can get uh, something north of $7 per cable subscriber for ESPN. Uh, if you throw in the other ESPN channels, including ESPN2, U, ESPN New, what it, you know, and uh, up to now Classic, they could get up to $9 uh, per subscriber on cable systems. Nobody else is even coming close to touching that. So if NBC can drive a few more $5 a month subscriptions to Peacock uh, by throwing some content on there, uh, it's a smart move for them because they're, they might be getting pennies uh, from each cable subscriber. So it, it, it makes a lot of economic sense. Uh, you know, I wonder a little bit if, if Fox has some, some plans to monetize the, the same exact way, uh, you know, with the USFL and with other properties. So it, it, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of these channels, you know, CBS's sports offering on, on cable, it, they're just not earning very much from subscribers. Yeah, look, I think um, I, I, obviously the, the, the move towards streaming, I, I think it's, um, I, I, it's it, it continues to be interesting. The economics of television, right, while hugely important to the survival of any sport and or fledgling, right? Look at the NFL, look at what the USFL 2.0 is, right? With its, its backers yet uh, the manner in which consumers, I, I think you'll see more of a movement towards uh, direct to consumer. Uh, and that's obviously in the realm of streaming. And I think frankly, you're also going to see a lot more uh, interactivity in those streamings uh, of programming, right? So as betting and commerce, uh, the look, just look at Twitch, right? Twitch is, is, um, really the, the, the younger male way to consume sports, right? Where ironically the sport itself, the game itself legally or illegally is sort of the background where the smash talk, uh, smash mouth talk and, uh, whatever other activities going on in the foreground amongst people watching or consuming. Um, so I, there's, it's, it's a very interesting evolution to see, um, for sure. I, I do think, though, Steve, to your point uh, on the YouTube thing, yeah, it is. There's and I, I am guilty of this, too. Right? I always look for uh, people know that a lot of the clips from the show come from that, the intros and stuff. Um, I, I It's usually a 50 50 uh, 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 process, though. Right. Sometimes you'll you'll be looking for something and it won't be there. And you're like, ah, where is it? This the Internet should be there. Something this didn't not exist. Uh, but then you also uh, oftentimes just as much find uh, a treasure trove of stuff and it becomes a gigantic rabbit hole. I oh, think yeah. I think that there is something in curation, right, that could be, if you will, a channel or a service or something in the streaming realm that that truly sort of helps categorize, contextualize, um, you know, having been watching this uh, Get Back documentary uh, and all 110 hours of it, it seems, on uh, on Disney Plus this weekend. Um, there is something to be said about curating history and putting it in context. Um, that doesn't exist as much on YouTube, right? So perhaps there's a, a next generation version of a ESPN classic uh, for people like us, he says, hopefully. You might be right, but we, 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 we represent a niche, uh, unfortunately. I, I, I was just thinking about the NHL uh, is part of one when, when they were maintaining their uh, broadcasting rights and you can buy, what was it? Game center, I guess. 
And one of the features of the Game Center subscription was you could access a huge trove of their archive games. And I just don't think that was much of a selling point. I mean, uh, it wasn't enough for them to keep the rights. They were happy to hand them over to ESPN. And now I think ESPN showing all the games instead. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's something to remember and we, we see it. None of us are getting rich doing what we do. Um, it's, it's a labor of love and there's a small group of people who like it, but, um, it's, it's not really driving a market. And I, and I guess that's kind of the thing that may have hurt ESPN classic with its advertisers. Um, because again, it's all about, um, how you can monetize the content and, if I, if I can spend my money on an ESP, ESPN2 ad that's going to be watched by a big buck demographic or, or, or on an ESPN Classic ad that's going to be watched by a smaller group, might be a little more affluent. Again, you tend to think people like history might be just a little better off. It's, it's a painting with a broad brush, but I'll just go with it for the sake of the example. But it's a smaller group. Where am I going to put my money? So, um, yeah, ultimately would hope, but having said all that, Right. Streaming is going back to overhead. You figure streaming is less of an issue. It's not like you have to buy broadcast time that yeah, maybe someone can decide how to make money by affordably offering a treasure trove of archive games that fans like all of us can access and watch and, uh, and get higher quality as opposed to the YouTube stuff. Um, uh, the, yeah, you hope someone to decide, Hey, there's a, there is a market for this. It may not be a big market. It's not the NFL, but someone's willing to pay for this uh let's go with it and then we won't find all this stuff disappearing and it'll be easier to find as opposed to like tim said yeah you there's rabbit holes that's entertaining but you know i was still looking for a clip of world team tennis action still didn't find that yet um yeah hopefully someone will decide that uh, there's an opportunity there and you'd think that there'd be an obvious opportunity right now for espn espn also already has a streaming service in espn plus they're shutting down ESPN Classic. You have a new USFL launching. You have all this this content that they had uh, created for ESPN Classic, USFL related. Even if they threw that up on on ESPN Plus right now, uh, they certainly have other games that they could do that with. Um, you know, I, I think picking opportunities uh, such as when something like the USFL is in the headlines um, could you know, possibly drive at least some subscriber growth for ESPN plus, but yeah, I mean, the draw of YouTube is just so great. And maybe that they, they just don't even consider it worth the while. Well, a, sh- a shout out to our friends at uh, dead football league. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, so dead football league, uh, literally they stream 24 seven <laughs> games of all these forgotten for- uh, leaks. Now copyright. I don't know. I don't know where they're getting them all. I don't know if it's all YouTube stuff or, uh, otherwise uh, gotten, but, uh, and then they've created even a second one now that's more of a, a subscription play. Uh, but it, it does show that curation does matter. And I will tell you, it is fascinating to watch because you're getting to see the unedited uh, version of, of the ESPN USFL game of the week or the, the handful of UFL games that happen on CBS Sports Network and elsewhere. Um, to me, it's fascinating. And, you know, again, to your point, Steve, it, that nobody gets rich off of it, but, it does show that, you know, maybe a big classic television network approach is not the way, but a uh, an intelligent curation streaming approach, some of which is on demand, some of which is a fast linear channel streaming. I, I don't know. Uh, there's a, a billion niches out there. These these don't seem to be too far of a stretch than some of the other ones I see out there content wise. 
No, you're right. If you have like a cooking channel, you know, you'd think you'd find room for a sports history channel. Well, there's a Bob Ross channel. Do we know this? So, you know, there's a Bob Ross streaming channel, right? So literally it's just all of the episodes of Bob Ross. uh, And there's no happy accidents, as as we know, by watching that show. But, you know, there is a passionate audience around that stuff. So, um, okay. well, uh, I don't want to belabor that and bemoan my uh, my uh, my own uh, the absences in my life. Uh, It's not uh, not for the uh, current conversation. So uh, let's get a little uh, crystal ball kind of thing, guys, from what do you think we should be looking for in uh, in 2022, whether it's current sports or or maybe some bold predictions of, of things that may not last or or some curiosities that you have on your radar uh, as well as your own personal efforts. Um, I'll just throw out some names and some terms. Uh, cornhole, pickleball. <laughs> uh, there is still the pro foot futsal league that uh, never officially died. Um, and uh, and but I think maybe more interesting, Major League Cricket in 2023 as that sport continues to grow. Um, feel free to take any of those or, or reject them all, but any predictions and thoughts about, I don't know what, what you're finding curious or might find uh, to be of interest in, in the, the new year. I'll jump on major league cricket because I'm actually a pretty big fan of cricket, but the main reason why I want to jump on it is that it's going to, I'm trying to think of the scientific term, but we're going to be able to, I think, almost literally see history repeat itself and that major league cricket is going to be United soccer association slash national professional soccer league of 1967. In that you have a sport with a worldwide following, admittedly not as big as soccer, but still a worldwide following. It's a really great game. I mean, I think if people took the time to actually learn cricket, particularly the T20 version, which is much shorter, a lot less tedious than full international test cricket, uh, in, in, without going into details, it's just a limit of pitches. So everyone, it's, it's more free swinging. It's almost more like home run derby. Um, but the problem it runs into, and this is the problem with global T20, the Canadian league that tried a couple of years ago. And what I've seen of what major league cricket's trying to run out now is that there are no, or at least it's been determined, there are no high quality Americans playing the game. So it's an all Indian. West Indian kind of lineup, a couple Australians, I guess. And is that going to be marketable? I mean, it really wasn't all that marketable in 67. Uh, or, or will they decide, you know, maybe we should try to sell the sport and the way to do it is we'll get some retired, recently retired baseball guys. It's not that big a transition. Get a couple of baseball guys. Let's, let's make it more American to see if we can get traction that way. Because, you know, as they found out in Canada and Canada is generally, um, at least in some markets, is a bit more, uh, there was a bit more cosmopolitan. You think if you, if there was a place where you could sell, you know, um, an all Indian team, it might have been in some of these, uh, the Canadian markets. It really didn't take, um, I don't, you know, a, a, a mix is obviously great, bring some great players over, but you got to mix locals in it. It's going to be, to me, it's going to be, will they learn the mistakes, learn from the mistakes that pro soccer made for so many years, thinking that, you know, in soccer's case, oh, quick, sign a Portuguese player in Boston and people will come out. It never worked that way. And thinking that, oh, there are sizable Indian communities and West Indian communities, Caribbean communities across the United States. Oh, they'll come out and watch. No, that, that's never the case. They'll stay home and watch their teams on satellite, their local teams that they grow up with on satellite. Will they learn the lessons uh, from the mistakes of the past or will they go out and, again, do what Global T20 did in Canada and failed? 
So that's what I'll be looking at, not only because I love cricket, but I want to see if they learned. And we always hear, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We're going to see it writ large if Major League Cricket actually gets off the ground in 2023. Yeah, there have been a couple of attempts previously, and um, you know, to your point, I, the, the the best version of it is is not here in the states. And although you know, there's there's an effort in 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 um, suburban Arlington, Texas, I think, to uh, to re- take a, a minor league baseball team uh, facility, and and they're trying to make it the first U.S. Uh, uh, cricket facility. I think Fort Lauderdale, where the old uh, 2.0 version of the NASL strikers played was also is a, is also another facility. So there there's already some effort to kind of build some stuff and some Indian investors and all that stuff. I don't know. I it, it's it's hard not to think that the audience wouldn't be there. But uh, to your point, um, uh, it's absolutely uh, a parallel possibly to to what happened in the late 60s with soccer in this country. Guys, what else? Well, do you well, guys, what's, yeah, what, what's it? Well, what's interesting sorry. here? Just to finish the thought, you know, my understanding is what's driving this is a lot of money from India because they're looking for TV content. Yeah. They think Indians will be more happy to watch other Indians playing cricket in the United States. And again, it's just another sign of how um, sports revenue streams and demographics are changing that uh, that might be enough. You know, there'll be TV money coming from India that's going to keep a league that no one's really going to watch. But but, the league will still be successful because it's providing television content Elsewhere, because it again it all comes back to in a world where with DVR and people can skip ads, the only place where advertisers are willing to pay top money is for live sports. So we need to create more live sports. Intriguing for sure. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on it for sure. Guys, what, what do you guys think? What do you guys have in your crystal balls? I think um, to me, the big story for next year that ripples out is the Major League Baseball lockout. Um, so in the past when there's been work stoppages in major league baseball, it's really benefited minor league baseball in 1981 and 1994. And uh, I mean, just for me personally, but I suspect I'm not the only one The changes that have happened in minor league baseball in the last, you know, 18 months, two years have left me pretty cold, you know, getting rid of all of the established leagues like the texas league and the pacific close league and giving them these sort of corporate speak replacements like low a east and high a midwest and has been pretty demoralizing um and obviously the minor league baseball lost its entire 2020 season so will would a lockout provide a sort of reinvigoration of minor league baseball um and then related to that if there's no baseball to watch on tv which of all these leagues kind of fills that void? Um, you know, does it does it create an opportunity for the PLL or the NWSL to make an aggressive move to try and fill some of that broadcast void that no baseball would would leave? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see the jockeying, I think, among a lot of different sports to try and take advantage of um, the vacuum if if the lockout holds um as long as some people think that it might for sure. andy I'm, for sure. I'm really go ahead paul oh andy i'm really glad you worked us uh to minor league baseball because uh tim last year on the show when you asked us what we were looking at for the coming year it was it was for me it was minor league baseball because of the changes because of major league baseball taking over and uh you know the changes that a lot of the changes that Major League Baseball made um, did feel very cold, feel very corporate, getting rid of 
uh, league names, uh, the Pacific Coast League with, uh, you know, 100 years of history, you just you just wiped it out. Uh, and no explanation, no apology, nothing. Um, so, yes, I, I think that uh, minor league baseball does need a little bit of a reinvigoration. And if the, the lockout provides that, that's fine with me. Um, but, you know, what fills that gap then, as Andy asks? I, you know, I think that, you know, it's possible that spring football, uh, you know, has a chance to to fill some of that. Uh, it, it, I would look more towards soccer at that point. Uh, you know, is this uh, kind of a, the break that Major League Soccer needs on TV? I, I don't know. I, it can't hurt. Um, but those are the... Those are the big things, you know, if uh, if indeed we do have a lengthy lockout and we miss some of the Major League Baseball season or a good chunk of it, uh, what it does to the minors and, and the other options that are out there, including spring football, is going to be interesting to see. Well, look, I, I you know, I have a whole host of, of things that I constantly uh, keep my eyes out for, including, uh, you know, what I, I tweet out is future episode watch and um uh, literally, I just put one out the other day, uh, I think yesterday or the day before. Um, and I know this is in pro, but I, I like to at some point I want to go a little deeper in sort of the college bowl uh, world, because that's certainly very corporate and, and pro like in some respects. And I saw just interestingly to me it was an eyebrow raise. Nobody seems to be focusing on it right now that the uh, the infinite wisdom of the uh, fast crumbling NCAA uh, this year is uh, is not going to be satisfied with 41 uh, bowls, but uh, needing to add a 42nd bowl for a one-year uh, extension because there uh, are two extra teams that had six wins this year. So they're going to roll out a one-time only bowl, sort of as an emergency uh, thing this weekend, uh, to, to accommodate the two teams uh, that uh, qualified for a bowl so that all, what is it, 84 qualifying teams can can have a bowl so it'll be sort of that sort of forgotten bowl right it'll be it'll one year wonder and then it'll go away that's perfect fodder for uh a good hour plus episode of this uh, little stupid show so um that's what i'll be looking for among many other things guys uh as always i appreciate you tolerating my silliness um but uh somehow in your own ways sharing my uh interest in the, whatever this uh, little area of uh, of life is um and i wish you the best for uh the holidays and uh, i also uh, want to say to each of you i appreciate your enthusiasm and your support of uh this show uh every time i have a question or or an inquiry or or a problem or whatever and you guys are always very uh, kind to uh, to reach out and and uh, and and be of help and i appreciate that very much well thank you so oh, no much problem. tim this yeah. is a great show it is. It's a great show. Any, any time, anything I can do to help because it's, uh, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's probably the best thing out there as far as podcasts. So good work and, and keep it up. Yeah. Happy holidays, guys. This was fun as always. My thanks, guys. Andy Crossley and uh, Paul Reitz and Steve Holroyd. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, we wish you all the best for 2022 and more stuff to come. And uh, thanks. It's been a treat, guys. All right. Always interesting stuff and uh, a virtual coffee clatch uh, of intrigue uh, someday, uh, some year, or maybe even before the year, uh, if um, travel and uh, uh, 
COVID and, and other sort of things kind of perhaps allow it, uh, we'll maybe do this in person uh, sometime. And, and God forbid, we'll actually do some in-person uh, podcast recordings. Uh, we had uh, long wanted to kind of put that on the docket, but that, that kind of got derailed uh, for obvious reasons. Um, geez, almost two years ago now. But we're still uh, eager to possibly uh, interview uh, first-person type people uh, in-person uh, settings, uh, in in-person settings, uh, in a, a, a theater or a, a conference area or, or a city or a place near you. Um, keep your fingers crossed because we'd love to explore that in 2022, as well as all kinds of other things in terms of commerce and some other content and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but let's see. Let's promote, shall we? Uh, Steve Holroyd can be found uh, on his Facebook uh, extravaganza known as Only the Ball Was Brown. Uh, also, uh, a podcast by the same name just out. A really interesting episode uh, he just put out on uh, Will Chamberlain and his time with the uh, Hawaii Volcanoes of the uh, Continental Basketball Association. So check that out. Uh, and you can follow Steve uh, on Twitter at In The Low Post. Uh, you can also follow his old but still sometimes active Twitter feeds at Lax Maven, M-A-V-N, and at Soccer Maven, M-A-V-N. Uh, let's see. Paul Reese uh, can be found on a whole bunch of places. Uh, statscrew.com. Again, that's for all kinds of great uh, sports statistics, he says, uh, of uh, leagues uh, current and past. Uh, you can follow uh, him there on Twitter uh, at statscrew. Uh, you can also check out his other website, OurSportsCentral.com, uh, which, again, is the uh, sort of... Uh, ultimate uh, news wire, if you will, for all things minor league and alternate league in pro sports. You can also follow it and him and them uh, on Twitter at OSC today. O as in Oscar, S as in Charlie, C as in, sorry, S as in Sam, C as in Charlie. OSC today. There you go. At OSC today uh, on Twitter. And Andy Crossley, last but not least, uh, the, um, uh, ultimate site, the Wikipedia, if you will, of of all things defunct and forgotten. It's fun while it lasted. Net, and again, uh, uh, Andy can be found on our uh, second ever episode. Check that out. Uh, it is exploits in women's soccer and other things, and uh, you can follow Andy uh, directly on Twitter as well at fun while it last, and the number one fun while it last, and the number one. Uh, terrific. Thank you. You can follow us, of course, on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Please follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. How about finding us on Facebook as well at Good Seats Still Available? Uh, our website, of course, is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. All of our old episodes and all the new ones to come will be listed and uh, posted there. Uh, of course, uh, you want to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast feed. That's probably the fastest and easiest way to get our show. But if you forget them or somehow want to uh, tip off a friend uh, to a show that they might uh, find interesting. Just go to the website. All those episodes are there for you to um, search around and enjoy, relive, uh, but also perhaps download or send them to friends or whatever you want to do. Uh, while you're there, if you want to send us some email, please, by all means, do so. We're at, at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also join our email uh, newsletter, which we'd like to send out each weekend, uh, giving you a little bit of a tip off as to what we're going to be talking about uh, that coming week. Our uh, uh, kind thanks, as always, uh, for not only this year, but 
all of the years, pretty much. Uh, our pal Jerry Payne at Podfly Productions. Happy holidays to you, sir. Jerry Payne Audio. Uh, sorry, not at Podfly Productions. What am I saying? God, I'm going back old school. Now, Jerry has moved on. It's Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. But, you know, a shout out to the Podfly guys. They're still at it. So we we thank them for getting us up and running for the first two years of our lives. There you go. Uh, we're in a, uh, a giving and uh, memorable spirit. Why not? And um, thank you, great listeners. We appreciate it. Uh, you've been uh, wonderful to us. Uh, this year, uh, as well as uh, the years prior, uh, we continue to kind of eke out a little uh, existence here on the uh, in the interwebs, interwebs with this uh, this silly little show. And we appreciate all of your kind comments. Keep them coming, as they say. Lots of great episodes and interviews coming up for you in the new year. So rest assured of that. And let's uh, take you out and celebrate uh, the holidays, shall we? Uh, as we kind of started, uh, I guess maybe last year, or maybe we're going to make it a little. A thing we do every year, we hope, knock on wood. Uh, we're going to disco-ify Christmas with a little, uh, you know, just uh, uh, we're gonna, a, a different twist, shall we say, from all the all the Christmas songs that you hear out there for over and over and over again, the same ones over and over again. Uh, how about a little disco rendition of, of one of those uh, great tunes? So let's turn the uh, clock back. I think it's to 1979 or so. Uh, the artist is known as Studio 99. Now, I don't know who that could be. Uh, I think it's perhaps the writers and the producers of this little uh, ditty, uh, Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, but uh, who knows? Um, I'm not sure Studio 99 put out a whole bunch of stuff, but you can find it on the album, The Greatest Ever Christmas Dance Party Mega Mix, Volume 1. Here it is, the Studio 99 rendition of Silver Bells. Enjoy. Happy holidays. We'll see you at the turn of the new year. Take care, everybody. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.